Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with author, psychotherapist, educator, and speaker, Troy Love. He is devoted to inspiring self-love and spiritual growth and is a two-time Amazon best-selling author and TEDx speaker. He has spent his life committed to finding unique and attainable ways to help people achieve greater peace, joy, and love in their lives. He is the founder of Finding Peace Consulting, hosts the Finding Peace podcast, and continues working as a psychotherapist, educator, consultant, and keynote speaker. Troy strives to pass on his experience to the next generation of students as an adjunct professor at Arizona State University. He volunteers his time to host educational webinars and drop-in groups for individuals needing support all over the world. Enjoy this interview. Hey, man, it's great to meet you. How's everything going today? Doing beautiful. How about you, man? Oh, it's good. It's good. I I like the handle, Troy Love. It comes off the tongue just fine. (laughs) That really is my last name, too, for real. (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, you hear about all these people that pick stage names like Tony Bennett and Bob Dylan and all these people. So, you know, um, yeah, so it's all good. Um, Where are you coming out of? I live in Yuma, Arizona. Oh, wow. Heat of the love the country. So I was watching the Royals game the other day and it was 87 degrees and uh, um, somebody came in the room and was talking about being out there recently where you could cook eggs on the pavement. That is true. In the summer, we totally can do it. It can get up to about 120 degrees. Man alive. See, and the thing is, and and and, I, and it really doesn't make that big of a difference, I think, when you come from Arizona, but when you talk about Kansas City, you have all this humidity. And mm. then if you if you if you had that temperature with the humidity we have here, dude, you would not even go outside. No. <laughs> humidity is gross. So yeah. they say it's a dry heat, but still feels like you're walking in an oven. But I'd rather take that than humidity any day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it's good looking out there. So, hey, man, it's great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out. And speaking about extremes, I'm going to start off with COVID. The last three years did quite a ditty on all of us in its own way. How absolutely. Did you, yeah. So how did you survive that three-year period now that the world's waking up? And how has it changed the way that you conduct business and live your life now? Well, as a therapist, for when when the world shut down, we scrambled to figure out how we were going to help people. Thankfully, technology like Zoom was around, so we were able to quickly have a learning curve of figuring out how to meet with people online. But it really impacted. I mean, one of the things that I do is really talk about connection and and reaching out, and it really really impacted our ability to do that. And so, watching. Uh, people that I care about deal with massive depression, high anxiety, and and counseling a lot of those people in my job. And trying to do that over Zoom was really hard because it's just it it's just it it's personal and it's the best we could do, but it was still not what I would have wanted, what anybody would have wanted. So that really uh, that put a big dent and I think we're going to see the consequences of that for years and years to come. I think that's the thing that's that that's a part of what we're going through right now is that we're still in this micro, we're not in the macro. We're in PTSD and with anything, whether it's a disease that scientists are looking into or it's mental health, you know, when you when you pull away and you have some time, you see the 2020. But I think the thing that's been good about this time period is that the idea of mental health is not just like, oh, get over it. Just right. 
you know what I'm saying? We're getting to a point now where we're recognizing that not only was it the pandemic, but it's the conditions by which we tend to live in this country, you know, that that have, that have become something that's been magnified. And I think that's, you know, that's it's a good thing for us to recognize and to deal with. Right. And how much we didn't realize what we had. Uh, my my younger son was able to still go to school in person, but my older daughter had to do everything online. And that just really impacted her in a lot of ways that my son hasn't had to experience. His social group was still intact. His, his level of mental health was still intact, but hers, oh, it struggled um, because of that impersonal isolation that a lot of people had to deal with. So when all of this started happening, I remember in January, I saw a picture of Beijing before we knew this was going to happen and it was empty. And I was like, oh, my God, like I just had a feeling. And then a friend of mine, I'm in the Kansas City area north of here, said that his kid got a note in like late January that said, just in case you need to take devices home, these are the marching orders. Well, I have a son on the autism spectrum and the two things that he likes the best school and baseball and it was getting to be march and i was like oh like i went to some weird denial phase like immediately the door just closed and i was like yeah you know we'll be okay you know mm -hmm. i just had to see the glass half full so but i think that's the thing that's crazy about it the irony is the proliferation of zoom and us being in touch still we still live through this chasm of needing each other community and physical contact was huge i mean what so if we huge. I mean, if we wanted to bring someone back from 100 years ago and say, all right, here's your so sociological study. Have a good time. They would be like, <laughs> wow, we finally got the answer. The yeah. Holy Grail, you know? Yeah. But the one thing I noticed with my son, too, is, is that I, putting him in therapeutic situations, it was much easier on me because I didn't have to take him out of school, drive 30 minutes downtown, be in a meeting five minutes that he's already uncomfortable with, 30 minutes back and dealing with whatever fallout could happen. It was, we did, we did it. It was a therapeutic session, but we did it in a way that I think was more conducive for him. Now, that's not the same thing with everybody, but that's just one of the silver lining byproducts I noticed. Well, I think, I think we learned a lot of, uh, that we could do a lot with technology that maybe we weren't comfortable doing and we had to so we learned that we could reduce the carbon footprint people could still go to conferences without having to travel all over the world so i think there was a lot that we did learn and some things that maybe we still haven't learned yet absolutely so let's get a handle on exactly what you do on a daily basis i'm going to hypothetically put you in front of a bunch of third graders you're okay. a career day, okay? You're in elementary school. And one <laughs> of the little people look up and say, what do you do for a living? How do you answer them? I help people heal their heart, owies. So when you were in the third grade, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I think I wanted to be a fireman. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't remember that far back. Um, I think I. I think I wanted to be a fireman. I thought those that looked really cool. So you're an emotional fireman now. I am. I help people put their um, their fires out. Absolutely. Inside. You you're you're the fire extinguisher that we need. Um, how did you get here? Go back to where where you were born and raised. Seeds get planted in us. Become who we are. They grow and sprout sprout out into us. 
How did this happen for you? You know, you're not just a guy that goes into work. You're a guy that gives out a lot of yourself to help others. How did that happen? I was adopted at birth. It was a closed adoption. My birth mother did not get to even hold me when I was born. I was immediately taken away and given to the nurses to be cared for for five days. And then my parents came to pick me up. And I always knew I was adopted, but there was always this weird question about where did I come from? I, I sometimes would joke it felt like I was an alien that got transported onto this planet. Uh, I was adopted. I was born in a hospital that was just down the street from my house. So I was always wondering whether my birth mother had had more children. Uh, where were they? Uh, was there anybody else that looked like me? So always kind of looking around and feeling apart from everybody. And then the family that uh, raised me, there was a lot of love in that home, but there was a lot of, of pain too. My dad had some severe anger problems, and it really, it was a home where there was a lot of domestic violence that was taking place. And so home didn't really feel safe. So I'm uh, feeling alone, feeling abandoned, and really not feeling safe at home. And then as I grew up in, in elementary school, middle school specifically, I was bullied a lot. Um, some pretty severe bullying. So I had all these wounds, I call them attachment wounds now, uh, rejection, abandonment, abuse that I didn't know I had, but I was carrying them around with me all the time. And um, when I was in high school, I kind of like became my friend's counselor. They were always coming and telling me their problems and I would listen. And although I didn't even know that that was a thing, it's weird. Uh, I didn't even know that there was a or a thing like a counselor, but that's what I was doing. So when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I landed in a social work 101 class and it just it resonated with me that this was the work I wanted to do. Because one of the primary pieces of social work is connection and that we're wired for connection. So that just kind of took me on a journey of figuring out what I could do to heal my wounds and in the process, I started to learn what could be done to help other people here heal theirs as well. So, you know, a lot of people go through wounds, go through trauma, go through things in their lives. And I'm curious, the more I talk to the therapy community, I'm wondering when that flashpoint happens, because I don't want to imagine it happens on your own. Maybe there's this comparison to your family and other people's experiences or counseling or therapy when do you think for a lot of people they think wow i had no idea that i was going through such a chewed up reality for so long when do you think that happens for a lot of people i think it's in your late teens early 20s it's really interesting the model that i that i created doesn't really work i mean it it does but it doesn't work with kids because they don't have the perception that these things are happening to them yet because it's their reality, right? So they don't realize that they're experiencing rejection because that's just life. They don't realize that they're experiencing abandonment because that's just life. But when you start to become a teenager and you start to interact with other people and really when you start to move out into the world uh, in your 20s and you start to interact with other people, you start to realize, wow, I, I do have some of these wounds. 
and it's not about blaming parents and saying they were crappy. It's really like these are these are painful things that I've been carrying around with me that I didn't even know, and that explains so much why I lose my temper, why I find ways to numb, why I want to push people away, why I want to isolate because I'm I'm hurting. So let me see if I can find a way to heal some of this stuff so I don't have to do that anymore. But that usually happens in our early twenties, early thirties. So let me ask you this. Pro, I would imagine with being adopted and, and growing up in your environment, you you probably had to find some level of hero or role model. You know, someone that really like inspired you. Who was that in your life? Uh, my grandparents. My my grandmother was somebody who I knew loved me unconditionally. And um, she was my safe person. And my grandpa was like the adventurer, he would, he loved uh, taking us out on his boat. He would take us hunting and stuff like that. I hated hunting, but I liked being out in the woods and just his kind, gentle teaching, uh, teaching way. He taught me how to do that. So my grandparents really were my models. Man, it's so important to have someone like that in your life that's just patient, good, smart, grounded and gives you the real deal you know absolutely um so if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now and spend a little time with them talk to them who would it be uh today i would love to hang out with brene brown um she does a lot of shame work uh, she's also a social worker uh, i did have the opportunity of meeting mr rogers and had about a 15-minute conversation with him be about a year and a half before he died. I was going to school in Pittsburgh, and I ran into him. And that was one of the most profound experiences of my life um, and his, his kindness. You know, it's funny. I talked to somebody that, that spent some time with them. They were in TV for a while. said the same thing. It was transformative. And the one thing that he told me that Mr. Rogers told him is that the, the, the gravest injustice we can do to the children of this world is to tell them that everything's okay. Not tell them grave things, but if you build up this mystique that there's not going to be things that are going to come along, it's not okay. Right. And, uh, but anyway, I, I he just taught. And I remember that speech that he gave. It's viral now and it goes through. I mean, that is a dude that you know came straight from the heart and he resides in a very special place on this planet for just being just he's got it he's like like what i call like i deal with the jazz world a lot and a lot of mm -hmm. the old elders from sonny rollins the um you know uh lou donaldson these elders that are still alive they remind me of the jazz jedi council they're in cloud city <laughs> they got the turbans they're just looking it down at all of us minions trying to figure it out and it's like mr rogers was right up there he was just just he he took what he learned in life and made it made wisdom just something simple right just, he is definitely one of my heroes wow. i try to be like him a lot that's cool so um so let me ask you this every day you wake up you know there's things that get us out of bed there's things that move us through the day what is the ultimate motivator for you what makes you accomplish and do and be who you are and to also give to others what you have it's it's weird that I'm able to say this now because I don't think I always believed it, but I have a light and I have gifts and talents that are 
not that I'm more special than somebody else, but they're my unique gifts and talents that I have that can bless people and help them connect with their light and truth. And when they connect with theirs, that is the most exciting thing to see the light come on inside of them, to see them believe in themselves. That is what gets me out of bed is to try and help somebody else experience that just like I did. You know, it's interesting. I remember uh, my engineer for my radio show, a uh, very wise man, John Christopher. And I remember telling him in the early days, I'd get off an interview with like a musician or someone, you know, I, I was just jazzed up talking about it. And he stopped me at one point and said, and he's always good about this, throwing out these little indispensable pieces of wisdom. And he said, you know, they may get as much out of you as you're getting out of them. And I think about what you're saying in life. You know, you think you're the divine one giving this advice out, but based on what they do and how they interact with you on it, it's just either by proxy or intentional. You know, it's just a part of the process. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from them. Yeah. It's healing. Yeah. It's good. Right. You know, it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So, of all of the clients that you've had and that you've helped, you know, you have to give of yourself. How do you find that dividing line where you're like, you know, I have to save enough for me in my tank so I don't run out on empty? How do you parlay that in your life? I had to learn that really early on. Um, you, I used to take all my clients home with me emotionally, and that was not going to be sustainable. And I actually had to take a break from counseling for a while and do some of my own work before I could do that again. What I learned is you walk into my my office with your wounds and I have mine, but you have yours and we're going to work on them. We're going to do wound care. We're going to give you strategies and tools to help you. But when you leave, those are still your wounds. You're going to take them with you. They're not mine. I got mine. You got yours. So I'm going to do everything I can to show up for you while you're here. And we're going to work on that. And then you're going to take those with you those are yours and you can come back again next week and we'll work on them again but those are yours and so learning how to let people own even if they are in denial letting them own their stuff and not feel like i have to own their stuff has been life changing for me so i'll do my best i'll show up as much as i can but at the end of the day this is your stuff and you got to take your clowns in your circus home with you you know, one of the things that's got me over this pandemic is one of the kind of by proxy things that's happened is with police. And I think about what they have to see and what paramedics have to see and how they separate them. My God, I mean, to go through that level of viewing all of that, to separate that between living a regular life and then seeing that I just there there's and I and I would imagine, you know, and emotionally, and I think that goes back to what I originally was saying about mental health. I think people are starting to understand that there's this dividing line between both. You know, I think people understand Robin Williams a little better post pandemic than they did before. You know, people mm. people didn't I don't think they quite understood what depression is. It's like anything like alcoholism or any of those things. It's not just a mood you get in. It's an actual thing that's a part of you, like somebody that may not have hands or a leg, you know, right. it's a condition, you know. Well, you talk about secondary trauma, like first responders are often exposed to secondary trauma. It's not happening to them, but they are witnessing the trauma of somebody. And then they can, that, uh, and a lot of times they don't take that home, but there's that one, one event, that one thing that's just a little bit different, and that can really impact 
somebody really can can create a lot of PTSD like symptoms for themselves, even though it didn't happen to them. And so my heart goes out to first responders and 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 there's a lot of culture now of being able to talk about that stuff that they didn't do before. And I, I hope that they know deep respect for them and hope that they take care of themselves because they do an important service. Certainly. So let's say tonight you have a dream, you run into the 20 year old version of yourself. You could give that younger version of you a piece of advice based on the life you've lived, the wisdom you've gained through all the trials, ups and downs. What would you tell your young version? Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. Believe in yourself and know that you are enough and that you have what it takes to succeed in this world. You do not have to please everybody else. You're not responsible for everybody else's happiness. So you live in integrity and do your best, but you really have what it takes to be successful in this life. Speaking of success, What's been one of the best client success stories you've ever been involved with? Um, I just, I just had uh, a couple that I've been working with for a while. They were on the brink of divorce. They were both struggling with addiction problems in in their relationship, and they were on their way out. And being able to give them some simple tools to help them connect with each other. They are one of the happiest couples that I have ever seen. It gives me hope for other people. And they are just, they just keep telling me how grateful for the work I did. And like, y'all did it. I just gave you a couple of tools. You figured it out, which most people don't. So watching them and the smile on their face and the love they have for each other, that is what I live for. So this next question is more philosophical rather than absolute. My question to you is this. When people enter therapy and go through this process of healing old wounds, do you think us as humans hit a point where we've overcome them or do you think they always still linger? What's your idea on the full therapeutic spectrum for a human trying to heal themselves? So I tell people it's not the wound that causes us suffering. It's what we've come to believe about ourselves as a result. So I, I can't ever undo the fact that I was adopted. So there is an abandonment wound that's there. I can't undo the fact that I was abused. So there is an abuse wound there. But what do I believe about myself as a result of that? When I was growing up, it was that I wasn't wanted. There was something wrong with me, that I'm bad, that I'm flawed. And I can change what I believe about myself. And in doing that, when something comes up that feels like abuse or something feels like abandonment, instead of automatically going into that thought of, well, it must be me, I'm, I'm dumb, I'm stupid. It's like, no, this hurts, but I'm enough. I can manage it. I can figure out how to take care of that. And to me, that's liberating. So of all of the things that you've accomplished and been through in your life, what are you the proudest of? I just was able to give a TEDx talk. That was one of my bucket list items. And I did that about a month ago. And I'm really excited about that. Right on. So talk to me a little bit about being an author. What does that, what does that mean for you? So in creating the model that I, the finding peace model that I use, a lot of people, as I was teaching it to people, they were asking, where can I learn more about this? This is really helpful. And I'm like, well, it's in my head. Um, here, I'll give you a handout. Uh, 
And they're like, you should write a book. And I said, well, maybe. And then eventually, and so then after a lot of people kept asking, I said, okay, I'm going to write a book. So I wrote that in 2017 and it's a workbook. It's a fusion of a fictional story of a group of people that go to group therapy every week and then they get homework and then you as the reader get the same homework. So that has, uh, that was my first endeavor. And then I, I wrote two more books after that. The last one was a year of self love and it's 365 little entries of what you can do to be more kind and loving to yourself. And it takes a lot. I, I have other ideas for other books, but there's a lot of energy around that, but it's fun to watch how that changes people's lives as well. So when you were growing up, what was the book that you read that either made you want to read more or made you think, man, I'd love to write. Mm. I read all the time. I was reading, reading, reading. It was one of my ways of escaping. I think one of my favorite books growing up was the bridge to Darabithia. Uh, it's a super sad book, but uh, just the dynamics of that friendship and the, the world that they lived in, that was one of the books. But I, I, I would read the back of shampoo bottles. I just loved reading everything. And then uh, one of my most influential teachers in high school was one of my creative writing teachers who helped me expand my genre because all I wanted to do at the time was write fairy tales. And she's like, Troy, you got to knock that off. You got to write something else. So she expanded that, and that's where I started to love writing, creating the world. That's wonderful. So everyone out there sees you in a different light, whether it's clients, colleagues, family, friends, but you ultimately run the ship. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I am a man of light. I'm a man of kindness. I'm a man of integrity and a man who loves to help other people connect with their light too. So if anyone wants to pick up your book, hire you, learn more about you, anything pertaining to the world of Troy Love, where do they go? FindingPeaceConsulting.com. Excellent. Troy, you're a pro, man. You're Thanks, man. Right to the point. We, we got in, we got out. I like it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Joe. Yeah, absolutely, man. Have a great day and send my best to Arizona. I got to get back down there. I actually went through there this summer. I went from Colorado, went to a wedding that was like from a Hallmark movie. And then we drove to San Diego and got through. And I love that part of the world. It's just coming from Kansas City where we're landlocked. When you get that in that part of the world, it's just eye candy everywhere. So beautiful. Thank God for digital cameras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, All right, thank man. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, business, spirituality, music, and more from around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. Mm -hmm.